well, I like to start by saying hello to the Buddhist geeks because they're here. They're not here with us at this moment, but yeah, we're going. Um, yeah, so hello, Buddhist geeks. Hi, Buddhist geeks. It's nice to join you today. I'm here with Dave Gold, um, who's uh, an old friend, and I would call you a mentor. That's flat. It's flattering and a little frightening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you, I'd say you're in some ways you're like one of my earliest uh, mentor in the realm of like spiritual stuff. Uh, I'd say my first mentor teacher was probably my aunt Janan, mm. who I started learning meditation from when I was a teen, um, and then later I was at NC State. Um, dropping out of computer engineering. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. We caught you at a very vulnerable time. <laughs> yeah, pretty much coincided with, you know, exploring um, meditation practice and starting to come to these, the student uh, groups at the Self-Knowledge Symposium, which I was, I was sort of dismayed to see, like, went out, kind of went out of existence several years ago. Yeah, it, it, Gradually, I, it it ran its course. That's probably the best way to say it. Yeah, makes sense. It was a cool place. It was it was so interesting to meet other people in this like giant university, NC State. There's like thirty five thousand people to meet some weird folks who were interested in some of the same kind of existential and philosophical and spiritual yeah. questions that were also of my age. Because most everyone in that scene at the time were older. Right, and and that was. That was kind of a uh, idiosyncratic part of the of Augie Turak, who was my partner and the founder of the SKS, my business partner as well as our partner, my partner with the SKS. That our the teacher that we worked with, Richard Rose, who was a it's another podcast, another story if we want to go there. But he was of the opinion that only young people could reach enlightenment. Oh, that's he said interesting. That when people, he said, once you get to be forty, your your head's too hard and you're too invested in life. And that, and also the accounts that he had read where people had their experience when I was younger than that. So he said, I don't want to waste my time with old people. I just want to work with young people. That's interesting. That's, I'd never heard that. Yeah. So that's how Augie and I, we were part of student groups at, in Pittsburgh where, mm. where I went to law school and where Augie was from and where Rose was in Wheeling just now, in Wheeling area just an hour away. And um, the SKS was Augie, who was very dynamic. Uh, organizer, charismatic in many ways, make things happen. When he moved to the area, he wanted to start groups. And so this was like, so a lot of what we were doing was taking this very hard-edged spiritual direction that probably not many college kids would be interested in, not many people who wanted to have a life would be interested in. Yes. And distilling it, translating it, uh, setting people on a path um, that could lead to spiritualism if they if they if they want depending on how far they wanted to go. So that's why we were on campuses. Yeah. So it was part of a larger strategy that yeah. tied back to Rose and how, how he thought of things. There was a, an adult I call it an adult group, but you know adults were like thirty or forty <laughs> uh, we had as well. But it was young people, and and I remember I do remember working with you, and I remember the interesting thing was that like so many you know there were hundreds, of, thousands of students I met and scores of that I had relationships with that similar to yours and and then i was with another spiritual group which we can't even remain nameless or name and they wanted to do something with buddhist geeks and 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 i don't know how they knew that i knew you but i thought oh my i saw vince Horn. oh my god he's he's a big he's a big deal now <laughs> i was so impressed that you would 
done so well for yourself in terms of making an impact, mm-hmm. an imprint on the spiritual circle. And then I reached out to you, and it, interestingly enough, it it didn't take long for us to. Uh, I think the connection is still there, and then to figure out what this connection meant with both of us evolving path, you know, through the SKS, and mm-hmm. also where we found ourselves in this point in life, and that's. It's been a couple years since you and I really hooked up and have been keeping in touch, and it's been just a beautiful inquiry. So when you say that I was a mentor to you, I, I, I do think it's flattering, and and I say frightening because I had so many ideas back then that I, uh, I would not advocate today. Mm. Uh, even the idea of those ideas—that's another story. But that I, where I just consider us, you know, equals at this point, and that's you know kind of leveled itself out as we both found our. Our place. I want to mention too that we're in the same room together, which is not, it's like not normal for Buddhist no. geeks. Well, I was so thrilled when you said that we would actually do this in person. And then when you moved a little bit closer, yeah, yeah it's been nice to just drive down. And we're kind of, I'm looking out the window right now, and there's just tons of trees. We're at this place, it's called the Clearwater Retreat Center. Yeah, and we're in and Chapel this, Hill. And this was nice. I, I want to just give a thank to Belinda Macri, who is the founder and the visionary and the owner and the resident of this beautiful retreat center in just outside of chapel hill here and uh it's she has classes and 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 retreats and in fact i was i almost got married here but (laughs) i we've actually had something that just aligned a little bit more and i would encourage anyone who is in the area or going to be in the area that wants a, a sacred place a quiet place and some great activities to check her out she's at uh clearwater-retreat.org. Nice. And I want to thank her for making this beautiful sacred space available to us. Today. Yeah, really nice. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, Belinda. And thank you for the tea. Oh, yes. I don't know if she knows we drank it. <laughs> she'll, she'll know once she hears this podcast. <laughs> we can edit that out if we need to. This is what I like to do: have people on the show and just, and then, and work on gradually disarm, you know, disarming each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> a good it doesn't take doesn't take long. <laughs> and, I, and I think long. I think what hope I hope people I hope comes through, and I'm sh- I'm sure you have this rapport with a lot of your guests, and because you're disarming, is there's just a natural there's a natural ease and a curiosity that we share. And I think the trans and I've all I've just so much believe, especially with what I'm doing now, that it's the the transmission, the direct transmission is is just something that if, when when we attune ourselves to that direct transmission, whatever it is, you know, if it's more of a tra- traditional spiritual mode of, you know, the transmission of an experience or a higher state of consciousness, or what's this just transmission of ease and affection that that is the, that, that that's, those are the ears that I want, that I would wish for people to be able to hear this, not just in terms of whatever words we speak, but also the fact there's a, ease, a respect, a curiosity, and a, and a confidence in life that you and I share that gets amplified when we speak together. And I'd hope people can pick that up as well and be attuned to that because it's quite precious and quite powerful. Yeah, you, you pointed out in our first conversation, where our prep call, you, uh, as we started talking, you're like, oh yeah, you're using the podcasting voice. <laughs> <clears throat> And that was really interesting. It's it's interesting. I've been thinking about that, you know, and I know I've noticed it for many years. You know, that's like certain contexts. Yeah. There's certain voices, yeah. and it's like teaching. It's true. Guided meditations. Mm-hmm. 
you know, with my wife, it's another voice, you know, it's more complex mm-hmm. and angrier. Um, <laughs> it's like, there's these different, almost personas or yeah. roles um, yeah. that we play. And I think that's, it's useful. You know, it's yes. useful. It's useful that I met you and you were in a particular yes. role at that time. You were right. a teacher, mentor, right. and then I met other teachers and mentors. And they were, you know, they, they had a focus, you know, in that role. It's like, I'm here to help you learn this mm-hmm. or do this. As a podcaster, like, I'm here to help you, like, hear things you've not heard before. Right. Con- you know, consider questions that maybe haven't been considered before. And, yeah, there's there's a particular way in which that role for me feels... Um, there's a risk and a vulnerability in it because mm-hmm. I basically show my ass every yeah. single time I hit the record yeah. button, and like, and then preserve it in the di- in a digital archive <laughs> so that anyone can come and see my ass for like generations to come. Hopefully, <laughs> so I don't know if you felt anything like that with uh with, with what you've with you've done, but uh, I find the teaching teaching role has similar similar yeah. things, and it seems like you're stepping into that more i wanted to kind of trace back your history a little and talk about how you got to where you are now i just want to make one comment which is that i think yeah there's the idea of just taking our roles which is inauthentic and then there's the taking on an appropriate position or attunement yeah and i feel that 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 and that that's subtle but it's very and there's a sobriety to what you're doing you know that so part of that podcast voice is a sobriety. It doesn't mean it's solemn or it's not light or you're not talking about showing your ass. I mean, it's, there's room for everything within that, but it, there's a certain sobriety to it. So anyway, I, I think you, I wouldn't say you pull it off because that seems like an act, but you pull it off because I think it's authentic. So anyway, I just wanted to put that little finer point on it. And then let's, let's talk about my evolution as a, from being a non-teacher to a non-teacher. <laughs> well, no, I remember when I was reading over your book, when I first met you, I think I, I picked up your first book. What yeah. was it called again? After the Absolute. After the After the Absolute. That's a good title. Thank you. Yeah, it still holds up. <laughs> <laughs> it's timeless, man. That's great. I mean, you know, there's a little irony in that too. <laughs> after the Absolute would be timeless, but I digress. Good. Yeah, I, I remember, I seem to remember that you you stumbled into being a seeker when you were quite young as well. You know, you were in law school at the 21, time? Yeah. yeah, 21. So that was, what, over four decades ago? <laughs> yes. And I thought your the time with Richard Rose and the way that you wrote about that was really interesting. That was inspiring for me as a kind of, almost like a hagiography. Mm. You know, I was really into hagiographies, spiritual hagiographies for a while, hearing people's stories and the, you know, the myths of their teachers and, you know, the amazing enlightenment experiences and all the weird ass shit that would happen, you know, on the path that was really exciting and interesting for a long time. And yours was one of the hey geographies that I read. Um, curious if you could talk a little bit about yeah. you know, Richard Rose and what like what that whole thing was about, because it, it seemed like he was like out. He was doing something before it really became popular in the United States. Like he was kind of a trailblazer in some way. I, I think his trailblazer was that he was blazing a trail that was directly contrary and as much as could um, in in contradiction and in, in, in direct conflict with the New Age movement. Mm. So, so, I mean, obviously I've had 40 some years to think about this. So I've had a lot of ideas around it. I just personally, I had, I came, I came to 
to, I had no interest in spiritual stuff that I knew of. I, I was a very materialistic kind of a guy. I mean, I thought I was, obviously. I, I wasn't. I just didn't spring from nothing. But I, but I had a, my, a series of setbacks, including the, the death of my beloved father at a, at a very young age. And, and I'm sure any psychologist would tell you I replaced one father one, at, during his life, a very demanding father figure with an even more demanding father figure. But I, I attended a meeting that, that he was giving on University of Pittsburgh campus working with young people. And he, mm. he I, without getting too deeply into it, he just basically castrated me with a really rusty knife in front of a lot of people. I challenged him in a very egoic way. And he just, but it wasn't just that I, he punched back, but he punched back with insight and wisdom and specificity. He, he just, it was like, and, and this is something you and I both, you know, what we, one thing we share, and I'm sure so many of your geeks share, if that's the appropriate term, your, I don't know what to call them. <laughs> we prefer geek over nerds or dorks. Okay. Yeah. Well, I would just say your, your multitude is we love the, you love the truth when you hear it, no matter how painful it is. There's something so beautiful about just hearing yeah. a truth. Yeah. And, and the truth that he said was so painful about what a frightened, you know, in, inauthentic, hedonistic, you know, bully I was only and then went away and way I was speaking. And, but he, he spoke, but it was the truth of what he said. It was that he just wove in some, what well, I guess you would call them as psychic insights, you know, re recounting things about me that no one knew. And, um, and evidently the, I, I think the angels or the devils were speaking in his ear, maybe both of them at the time. And he just hit me and I got intrigued. I, I decided I was going to stick around until I figured out how this man did what he did. Hmm. And I was going to learn his tricks and I was going to go take it out in the world and make a lot of money with it or whatever. And instead I ended up falling in love with the truth. I just realized, Oh my God, I'd heard the, I don't know. And I'm, I'm kind of, I, again, this isn't a story I'm, I'm being what we talked about before the podcast. I'm just unpacking this and whatever this moment seems to mm. reveal and draw forth for me so i but rose but rose his own path was so he just was was born in, in what he was born in west virginia during the depression you know it's it's not really what you call having a leg up on life and mm. and just through just through sheer determination without even knowing there was such a thing as enlightenment or you know samadhi or whatever one wants to call it he just drove towards the truth and then had this cataclysmic experience which he didn't even know that that there was such an experience. This is his, this is his story. And whatever he, whatever did or did not happen to him, he had a tremendous power to transmit, and to, and and he was also incredibly demanding, um, in terms of what he expected of his students. He was very harsh. He was very direct. And I would say, in in retrospect, I kind of glossed over this. Had a lot of the values that you would expect. He was he didn't like blacks, didn't like gays, didn't like women, didn't like Jews. He didn't like me very much. You know, he just really didn't like. He just was very negative. But his negativity was also his path. It was like cracking every illusion you could. You just cracked illusion, cracked illusion, cracked illusion. But also with that, there was a demand for celibacy. I mean, this mm. is something that I embraced. That uh, was quite a quite a um, educator for me, and also I think. Uh, something that I'm, I, I've had to overcome in terms of the arrested development that came through that path. I spent mm. 30 days a year isolated in a cabin, my own cabin, where I wouldn't see a soul. I just meditate for 30 days and mm -hmm. take, take cold springs. So there was a, and then I just basically renounced life. Mm. And the idea was that I was going to, I don't I want anything to get in the way of my path for truth. So I became a very, very determined person. 
and also a was very... Rosen renunciate renunciate practitioner? Oh my God, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah totally, completely. They, it just was nothing got in the way. And then what I would see is he was he would only attract a small band of brothers to begin with because he was so hard to deal with and his path was so demanding. That hmm. I would watch people, and I'm, I got air quotes. People can't see fall off the path. End of air quotes. And I thought, oh, you know, a girl did that, or a career did that, or they ran up against a wall that they couldn't, they wouldn't go through. And I just said, I am not letting go. I am going to see this thing through. Nothing is going to get in the way. And interestingly enough, just from a, a, a flavorful standpoint, at the same time I was, I was practicing law in this corrupt town, which is what that book was about. Mm. So it wasn't like I'm a renunciate, but I'm, I'm in a damn courtroom. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm marketing a practice. I'm living in the world. I've got my feet in both worlds. Oh, that's tough. And so that was, and that's really marked forever. You know, I've all, oh, I've been a lawyer, I've been an entrepreneur, I've been all kinds of things. And so, and I think it is without jumping too far ahead that it has prepared me for the fact that what I so desperately longed for, got taste of, was willing to sacrifice life and even my life for in terms of some transcendent truth at the same time i was always i was always i don't say embedded but at least walking in the world and now that i have found everything and i'll put everything in air quotes too because who knows how big everything is but i found everything that i was looking for in 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 the world in love on the earth it's it's somewhat ironic um but i enough to say it was a balls to the wall spiritual search and I would, and if it hadn't been for the fact that eventually he threw me out of the group, you know, I still might be perched in that cabin at the farm. But finally, it was time for me to go, and I wouldn't. I swore I wouldn't leave, so he had to pick me up by the scruff of my neck and throw me through the door without opening. It's like one of those cartoons, you know, where they throw you through the door, and all you see in the door is the outline of the person <laughs> who went through the door. It was yeah. kind of like that. So I don't know if that. What and what and do you have any sense of of why why? Well, this, yeah, I mean, you know, again, you could put a lot of stories, and I think a lot of Rose's students would like me to put, a, would like me to say well, this was all timing and spiritual wisdom, but the guy was losing his mind, mm. you know, and you have a crazy wisdom teacher who's actually going crazy. I mean, that's, that mm. makes for a good reality TV show, but it doesn't make for a good way to mm. be a student. Right. And he ended up dying as a babbling idiot in a nursing home. So he was starting to lose his, his grip. And I think that he just, he was able to hold it together with a certain, you know, like many author, author, authoritarian, there it is. Anyway, you know, people like authority. Um, <laughs> and, and I would say also deeply yes. narcissistic as many for, you know, I guess that's what one would could point to a lot of spiritual teachers and, and, and interpret that in a paradigm of, of narcissism that he held things together with a small band of people. Mm. And then once that started to go, I think he started to lose his grip on control. So, um, there was some incidents in particular, which is you know, st still something I talk privately, but not, you know, in front of your millions of rabid fans about that, that brought things to a head. But it was quite traumatic. I came out of a 40-day isolation. Mm. You know, so you talk about being pristine and being wide open. And I walked in and he, I saw him and he threw me out of the group. So it was quite a mm. traumatic uh, and then I had, I remember I sat, it's like the old, it's probably what he was tr always trying to get me to do. Or I literally s sat down with a, on a yellow, went back to my cabin with a yellow pad and say, what do I know for sure? Because mm. my whole life had been upended, my whole, my path, my sense of what I was doing, what it was about, where it could possibly lead had just been pulled out and I didn't have a plan B. Right, right. You'd invested so much into, into what you, 
into who you were probably also as a and one one thing that that Andrew Cohen, the other teacher that I worked with and also didn't turn out so well with them in terms of him as a teacher and what he tried to build and is he talked about not having a back door because you know as we know when shit hits you'll take the back door if there's one that looks it's open and smells good mm -hmm. and so I didn't keep any back doors. Yeah, that's so interesting. You know, the first thing that comes to mind is just thinking about young men. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you, you all were trying to reach young people, but I remember in SKS, predominantly we were young guys. Yeah, yep. And this is, I mean, I, I, it's yeah. obvious this is kind of a masculine path that you're describing yes. as well. Very. And Rose being like almost like a harsh... West Virginia, you know, product of his times. And too. I think you could say misogynist. Yeah, I mean, a product of his times. Yeah. An, an enlightened misogynist, yeah. you know, West Virginian <laughs> farmer who grew up in the Depre Great yeah. Depression in one of the probably most depressed regions <laughs> yeah. of, the, of the country. Yeah, and of the state. And also with that, that he saw what he thought were women were a danger to take the men off the path. So he viewed that right, as and that, being that's the classic song, and that's an old story, yeah, you know, that goes back to you yeah. know. And and I I say enlightened, and I I don't know what that word means anymore. So right. I don't okay. I don't want to correct you and say he yeah. was. He had some was. sort of enlightenment. Yeah, experience. He, had, he had some profound. He had some experience that we interpret as being an ultimate experience that we wanted to have as well. Right, right. So whatever his experience was, whatever his motives were, is still a mystery. And so mm. I I just don't want to necessarily put my imprinter on him having you know being the pinnacle of spiritual sure. wisdom and development sure sure of course and yet you know young men are looking for that you know i think they're looking for uh often looking for a source of authority mm -hmm. to tell them how to direct their energy yes. all this intense yes. ambition and right. and striving and you know kind of idealism mm -hmm. um that seems like such a common pattern uh, and I know it happens with women as well, but yeah. it's probably psych psychodynamically different. Yeah, and I know? think the flavor of what we there there could be a corollary that would take the cultural, you know, and the genetic parts of women and 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 related archetypically as almost as this group was. And I know personally for me, I I mean here I am, I'm a, a kind of a, a relatively skinny, you know, smart, uh, you know, overly intellectual guy, and I wanted to be a hard ass, and I and I actually found it so. I, I found it so re fulfilling to to challenge myself and to build you know build up build to conquer my fears to con and take on my fears and to talk about the idealism. I was just on this crusade and my the town was so corrupt and again it's in the book which I don't necessarily recommend people read. My my wife won't let anybody read it because it, <laughs> she hasn't read it because she gets halfway through and she wants to dig Rose up and wring his neck um, <laughs> and maybe mine too for 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 putting the years in the way I did. Um, but, but I I was so idealistic, mm. you know, and 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 in a way, you know, just but in a way, you know, it's 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 funny because recently I was in not recently but not too long ago I was in a courtroom setting and the lawyer, it was a stupid small claims court over, over uh, a lease and I'm I'm in the court and. The, and then the magistrate says, you can't talk. You're not licensed in this state. And I said, all right. And I'm about ready to explode. You know, again, like a cartoon figure. It's getting red. My face is getting big. And the lawyer on the other side made some comment that that cast a bad light on my on my now wife, my beloved. And I leaned over to Julie and I said, do you mind if I tell the lawyer that the next time he makes a comment like that, I'm going to wring his neck? 
and Julie thought I was kidding. She said, sure, go ahead. I leaned over and I said, I mean, I wish they could see it. I said, you make one more comment about Julie like that, and I'm going to wring your fucking neck. And this lawyer jumps up and he says, your honor, Mr. Gould just threatened to wring my neck. I ain't here in open court. And like, you know, the magistrate throws me out of the courtroom. Which is fine. You know, I practice a lot. I never got thrown out of court. I get thrown out of magistrate's court in North Carolina, for Christ's sake. But the point is, that's who I am. I'm not going to take shit. I'm not going to take shit. My family's not going to take shit. You know, I'm not looking for a fight like Rose was. I'm not trying to prove that I'm a man. But somehow, I love, I'm a man of love. I love love. I love living in love. I love living without conflict. I, you know, I'm discovering, and this is what I hope, I'm sure we'll talk about, it, what it means to live a path where... A path of ease and a path of, of, you know, I even use the word quantum entanglement of love that's so contagious and what this, what these, these deep, timeless spiritual principles look like when they're lived in relationship, mm. whether it's in, you know, a, a romantic relationship or relationship we have, whatever. And someone challenges my wife's morals, <laughs> I'm going to wring his fucking neck. And so it gets back to what she said. There's something about that that, I think is not, I'm not willing to throw it away as being just some, you know, cultural vestige that I've got to be some kind of Superman and I should have all passed it. So yes, there was something very innately satisfying. Part of it was egoic, part of it was holier than now. There was a lot of pathological elements of what you're speaking to yeah. that I would not recommend that I've, I've had to, that have been, you know, like just smooth, the, the, the rough edges have been smoothed over by love mm. and a different type of a path. But I am so glad that I have that part of me. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that oftentimes in spiritual practice, and I've, I've done this too, you know, it's like those, those sort of more basic instincts, mm -hmm. you know, like wanting to protect the people we love and, you know, these mm -hmm. like very fundamental things, mm -hmm. um, they often are, are, are seem to be like counter to whatever the spiritual yeah. path is supposed to be about. Like love mm -hmm. somehow ends up meaning like just rolling over and being okay with whatever happens, you know, um, which is so, you know, for me, when I hear that kind of love being yeah. paraded as spiritual yeah. wisdom, yes. like there's this sort of inner, the inner masculine part of me just yeah. wants to just, you know, just Ring like somebody's neck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I can relate. And you know what's interesting about this? We're talking about this. Is what I get love about being with you is because it's just revelatory of things that you think you know. Is the difference? Rose was looking for a fight, hmm. so the whole idea was Rose. Rose's father. You know, this is part of the legacy of Rose. And again, I don't want to. I I come to bury him, not to praise him. Okay, like Caesar. But his father, when Rose, when Rose's wife was pregnant, when Rose's mom was pregnant with Rose, Richard Rose. Rose's father, Samuel Rose, somebody pushed his wife off a sidewalk when she was pregnant. It's Rose's mother. I hope I, I can, I'm getting all these people straight. So Rose's mother, who's carrying Richard Rose, is walking down the street in Benwood, West Virginia. man pushes him off the sidewalk. His Rose's father, Samuel Rose, gets a gun and blows his head off. Wow. And walks into the police station and said, I've just killed, I think it was Richard Port was the guy's name. And by the way, I looked up all these documents and I lost them before I had to put them in the book, but it's, you know, incredible. And, and, and Rose's father said when he was in the penitentiary, he realized that the first time someone whistled at you, you had to stick a knife in him. Because if you didn't stick a knife in him, then the next thing they put your hands on you, blah, 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 blah. So to Rose, the whole world was a whistling wolf. 
and you were always looking for fights. Mm. And that is so different than you have an eye and a heart attuned to love. Yep. And you don't know what that love's going to look like. It might be sticking, you know, I don't have to say it, but it could be whatever is called forth from you in that love. But your your perspective, your soul, your soul is aligned. There's an alignment, an attunement that is so different from, and this gets to what you and I are just, I think is the edge of, one of the edges talking about is just trusting life. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to see the, to feel like you're living in a penitentiary full of wolves versus living in a playground of love? Mm. One of my meditation teachers, Trudy, she, she sort of, uh, when we were hanging out in Los Angeles and studying with her, she was talk, she often talked about how, well, a couple of things are interesting. One, how as a teacher, we're always teaching what we need to learn. Mm-hmm. And uh, even if we're trying to avoid doing it, we end up doing it. Um, and then the other thing that, that really kind of stuck with me was that, you know, when you, when you enter into a relationship with a teacher or community or whatever, um, you know, you really, in a way, you're taking everything in from that community mm-hmm. teacher. Like you're swallowing the whole fish as Genpo Roshi talked yeah. about with his teacher, Maizumi Roshi. You're, you know, you, you kind of have to take everything and then sort it out later. But that's a serious, you know, it's whether, whether it's known or not known, it's a serious commitment to enter into someone's karmic stream, you could say. Become part of their, their extended family. Um, and maybe we don't get to choose exactly how that happens, but yeah. that's what that's what came to mind when you're as you're as you're talking about Rose. And- well, just interesting for me, and and one of the things that Vince, you and I were talking about beforehand was just how much you can how much you can just kind of put a just put a story to things, but how much you you look at certain phases of your life and you think was that foolishness or was that necessary? It was it both? Whatever. Mm-hmm. And for me, I mean, obviously there's something, I, I'm the man I am because of the 20 years I spent with Rose and, and, and the somewhat the 10 years or 12 years that I spent with Cohen Yeah. that I wouldn't recommend for anybody. And, but I could not, I, I, I would not be here on, on, with a microphone talking to you if I hadn't come to the conclusion and followed the vertical wisdom that I had that I was never going to subvert myself to another human being. Mm. I was not going to take anybody's voice among uh, and supplant my own. It doesn't mean that I don't take wisdom from everywhere and that I don't, you know, I'm not brought to my feet when I go to the Trappist monastery or, you know, when I hear when perennial wisdom, it's not that I'm that arrogant, but I will never take another person's voice and subjugate my own voice to that. Mm-hmm. And whether that's just because I'm in my 60s and I've taken enough shit in my life and right. it's time for me to step into my own shoes right. or whether that's a bit of wisdom that I should have taken, you know, or could have taken when I was 21 and Rose read my mind and slapped me around a little bit. Who knows? But it's for what it's worth. Yeah. So I remember, I remember, in, I think it was in 2000, maybe 10 or 11, we connected. Mm. Wow. It was just like a brief conversation. Yeah. I was living in Los Angeles at the time and I remember being in the in the office that I had there and talking to you. At that time, I think you were involved with Andrew Cohen's community yeah. and your teaching. And you know, I knew Cohen from the days of working for Ken Wilbur and in Integral mm-hmm. Institute, which was even before this mm-hmm. um, call that we had. And I, I, I recalled really appreciating the ideas mm-hmm. and the people that were connected with Cohen. Mm-hmm. 
um, especially the writing and what is enlightenment mm -hmm. and some of the dialogues that Cohen and Wilbur were mm -hmm. having. Although I think in retrospect, we're kind of, you know, there's a lot of arrogance <laughs> there. Duh. <laughs> duh. Right. Duh, duh, in retro you know, duh, duh in retrospect. I mean, that's just like, who's the more arrogant? You know, this is an arrogant off. Who can be the more arrogant person over here? I, I'll see your arrogance and raise you a little bit of hubris. <laughs> anyway. Yes, and and there's and there and at the same time they're brilliant, brilliant things, brilliant in the dialogue and transformative. Yeah, and 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 I always felt like that was the kind of the paradoxical combination yeah. of of both Cohen and Wilbur and yeah. the communities around them. They're real similar. Yeah. That there was a sort of you know whereas Cohen was the guru, yeah. Wilbur was the the, the pundit. Yeah. Um. You know, but there was something. Yeah, just kind of brilliant and there's a kind of openness and exploration experimentation and then also the authoritarianism and the you know kind of like the anti-post you know modernism right. like your your sensitive postmodern ego is like you know the problem we need to transcend that and kind of like all these notions of shadow and all this stuff is like tied in with the postmodern ego. Anyway, I'm going into too much yeah. detail yeah, here, I, but I, you're getting excited. This is, <laughs> this is you're throwing a little water but, in the okay. water for the shark. But here's my honest recollection. I okay. remember talking to you in 2010 or whatever. And I, I remember enjoying connecting with yeah. you, but I also remember getting off the phone and being like, God, Dave is such a dick. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember having this experience with multiple students of cohen's yeah and that was the reason i yeah. never got close to yeah. the guy because i just it just something about the scene really smelled fishy and there yeah. was something that drew me in right oh, welcome to the nfl yeah i'm welcome to the club that's <laughs> so the what what cohen had that was brilliant was this idea of that it was it was more collective than an individual and this was yeah so there was like a collective enlightenment that he was able to generate that i that I experienced. You I'm know, curious we, to hear about that, like what that, yeah, yeah, what I'd be that thrilled, was. I'd be thrilled to talk about that. Um, so I don't know whether I should go there. Let me do, let me make the, the mega meta point and come back and fill in some of the, just to answer your first question, is that, so what that did f for me is that it got me out of this hyper narcissistic spiritual thing it's all about my enlightenment all, all about because of him it wasn't about he didn't care about your individual enlightenment he only cared about the collective so mm -hmm. that was just re reassuring to just suddenly say oh like you know take the focus out even though there's so much to it he attracted brilliant not just like intellectually but, but just brilliant people people just with brilliant souls and brilliant minds without doubt i mean yeah i mean the, the people that managed to go through that and still you know i, I, I mentioned i'm going out to carter phipps's 50th birthday party in oakland in a month and i mean it's going to be a reunion and, and I'm, I'm thinking it's like a who's who of <laughs> it's like mensa <laughs> on steroids in terms of their accomplishments so we attracted great people and there was such an arrogance about around him and about what he was doing about what we were doing it was so cultish because hmm. here see what, what i think what cohen's what cohen started teaching cohen was a student and then he got he had an experience and then he was a teacher yeah he, and he but he never had a job you know, right. he never, he just never had to, he never was out in the world yep. and they have all of these adoring people that are immediately just, and, and having the power of teaching that he did. So he, he created, you know, I'll, I'll talk about the collective enlightenment. I mean, that's my term. I can't remember what we had many terms for that he came, but it was a very strata. It was like the mafia. It really was in terms of you had a next strata out, a next strata out and everybody, you know, 
everybody just held the next line of people and everyone was crawling to get in close to him and he kept everybody in fighting. You know, there's just a lot of real pathology to it. So, um, and so, you know, the dickness that, that I was emulating then, whether I was just a, a virtual dick or a real dick, who knows? But it was that, you know, this is kind of the way we held ourselves. We knew and we wanted and we wanted to impress the guru and we wanted to get, I wanted to come back with a pelt. I'm sure that's what it was. I wanted yeah. to pelt of Vince, of Buddhist geeks, whatever it was yeah, that yeah. sent me out to get. I was the great hunter coming back with all my, yeah. I think, my I, th I think that's what we were part of, part of what we were talking about was having Andrew on the show. And I did have him on, on the show. Yeah. And it was funny because it, <laughs> the first part I released, the second part I found to be so arrogant that I would be embarrassed <laughs> to release it. So I didn't. <laughs> Because I asked him a question. I'm going to say that. I asked him a question at one point. This is the unreleased Andrew Cohen. You're going to get sneak peek. Oh, I said, I asked, him, tapes. I asked him a question. It was the Barbara Walters question I've heard it's called, which is, tell me, tell me what your critics don't under, don't get about you. Uh, that was how the conversation yeah. started. So to, to be fair, it was like partially my fault. Yeah. But also at one point I remember asking, I was like, you know, you're in many ways a pioneer and you've gone out and you've been exploring these different, you know, collective enlightenment and all these things and you know pioneers are often as ken wilbur talked about the ones with the arrows in their back you know and also pioneers are the ones that make all the first mistakes right. you know <laughs> so looking back at your career you know i said what kind of mistakes do you see you know that that you've made and you know his answer was that there weren't any and it wasn't like the absolute, yeah, you know, right, right. it was right. like, it was, no, it was like no, narcissistically. I made, I made there every any. right decision I could, that needed to be made. Every time I came to a fork in the road, I chose wisely. And you talked about narcissism and authoritarianism. And that, that seems like a very big topic right now. Just broad. Oh broadly. my God. Yeah. You can't swing a, as you say, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting narcissists <laughs> anymore. They're just everywhere. Um, and I, I think one of the things that one of his closest students who actually for a while was became a business partner after the organization fell apart. And he said, you just, it's so easy to conflate the, the deep soul level transmission and awakening and the truth and the beauty and the vision and the, just the utopian, that's the word I'm looking for. Mm. Just the utopian sense that you get from someone like him, that he, that he awakened in all, all of us. And they conflate that with the person and with the pathology of the organization and the institution that arises around yes. him. And I think that's probably the best way to to describe it. And it's just funny we're having this conversation because I was stuck on the board of directors when the whole thing imploded a few years ago. And I've been I've been, you know, talking about the guy with the arrows in his back, there's no one else to shoot. And we just shut it down like last week. Mm. We finally got the authority to shut the thing down. So this is, I feel free to talk about things that I couldn't, if I was still a board member and trustee for the organization, mm. and technically speaking. But the the collective enlightenment was the, the he talked about this evolutionary impulse. And now, yes, I've got to go back a ways and, into my experience. Uh, but that there's this evolutionary, this impulse pulling you up and that it arrived and that the, the, absolute nature of that there's an absolute nature in you know of our traditional you know the buddhist or whatever just the perennial wisdom and then there's also the the absolute endlessness of creation itself and those are two you know two sides of the same coin that have no sides type of thing and that and this is me this isn't him this is i'll just tell you my experience of it i don't want to i don't want to try to recreate his cosmology let me just tell you my experience that in the meeting point of those two absolutes is ecstasy 
there's the there's the perennial wisdom that is just streaming down as all of us have had in these transcendent experience the perfection and then there's the excitement and the urgency of creation in and in groups of people with a certain kind of structure to how we communicated and what we were feeling into and people that were attuned for this that you could you actually became you were you were the manifest you were the impulse in a man in this particular manifestation form so that you were you were creating you were you were you were unpacking wisdom and you were creating the future all at the same time that's probably the best way i could say it and i found myself out of the corner of my eye thinking oh my god this is what enlightenment you know i'm having I'm, I'm feeling totally natural mm-hmm. you know i i'm feeling unselfconscious i'm i'm feeling create whatever it is and i would think i'm not enlightened but i'm having this experience that it totally attunes to the deepest spiritual experience hence i've had in spiritual experiences and what i've read about mm. and so this was this wasn't just about your experience but you really you could feel the creative the creative impulse mm. and i and I, i'm glad that i've, I've i'm i want to want to i hate to use this terminology and talk about the evolutionary impulse now in my life but i love to create mm-hmm. I, I can feel it I, I just love to find its way and at the same time it's it's tempered it's just tempered with the ease and the in the eternity and the eternality and the perfection and nothing's ever happened or ever needs to happen that mm. comes from you know the traditional light man those two you blend those two together and it's a hell of a soup i mean it's it's quite it's quite something mm. and i would say again going back to my current i don't know what to call it i can't even come up with a word um, the wordsmith is lost for words here my current appreciation of life is that that's what I find love to be. I I find this love unimaginable to be, to just have those same qualities of the, the imperson, the impersonality of, of, of the absolute, just the, this, it's, it's so impersonal in the sense that it's just so beyond you. It's so other dimensional, and it's coupled with the extreme personality of who we are, of that which loves and that is which love. And I think that if I look as now, again, I'm kind of creating something, I'm making connections, which I might deny later, but it seemed to be true, is I think I got a sense of what that was like in the collective enlightenment, but freed from all that authoritarianism, all those ideas, all those certainly us versus them and the stratification and the hierarchy, that it is free to just blossom you know, in love and as love, and and for that I'm I'm grateful for that education or that dunking into that that interpenetration of dimensions that that Cohen opened up. It's it, it, interesting. It doesn't completely map on perfectly, mm-hmm. but as you're describing your own trajectory, like I'm thinking too of um, you know in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, they have a schema for talking about the evolution of buddhism you know and it's like they have the hinayana the mahayana and the vajrayana mm-hmm. and those are considered to be almost like building on each other and kind of adding things that mm-hmm. we're missing um but also all being the words of the buddha um meaning they all have the same power mm-hmm. in terms of their what they're pointing to so I partially hear a little bit of that in your own journey, like the the Hinayana, early mm. Buddhist renunciative path. Mm. Is, it, it's very much characterized by mm. renunciation and by breaking through into the absolute. Mm-hmm. And 
that's pretty much the goal. Yep. It's to get out of the relative and into the absolute, mm-hmm. um, more or less. You know, yeah. there could be arguments made. Sure. But, you know, that's how I interpreted a lot of it. Um, and then there's the Mahayana, which sort of was such a big revolution, putting compassion and wisdom on the same footing, as Shinzen Young describes it. Um, that it wasn't like wisdom was the highest thing and everything below it, but compassion was, equi- you know, in the heart. The awakened love was equivalent. Um, and that gave rise to like very different mm-hmm. metaphysics and um, ways of practicing and the bodhisattva vow and things mm-hmm. like that. And then there's the tantric, you know, the Vajrayana mm, tantrism, you know, which has as its emphasis, you know, that seeing the world as sacred. Um, that everything is sacred, everything's mm-hmm. oh, oh, everything is awakened. You know that you can look at life right. as that. That's it. That that's so beautiful. And there's a kind of magic to it. Um, there's a completeness to it that no matter how much we relatively try to mimic the absolute by not making judgments and not de- delineating between the spiritual and the non-spiritual, mm. the mind won't do it. And that I I can't even imagine what enlightenment i don't know what i can't i don't know what enlightenment is you know i couldn't wrap my head around what it would be like to search for that because i just feel that uh, life and love is and again this is still i i i I hope i'm not giving the impression i'm living in a la la land because a lot of shit's happening it continues to happen there's been and i think even this kind of love it's like two two platonic plates coming together with an earthquake i mean it, it has been quite it's 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 been quite a quite upheavals as well as being quite blissful and but yes it's it's very very hard i don't i have no desire to delineate between what is spiritual what isn't spiritual i think it gets Mm -hmm. to what we're talking beforehand of of the of the morality of clean connection you know the 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 morality that reveals itself or the truth or or the next step or whatever you want to call it the authenticity that is when there's just a clean channel between you and whatever you're in relationship with. I don't know if that's too deep or too obscure, or if you want to tease it out a bit. Yeah, what's interesting, because we were talking a little bit about this before we hit the record right. button, just kind of warming up. Yeah. And I, I looked, maybe, maybe you could say a little bit more about, about what you mean. Yeah. So coming through two teachers with, you know, here's Rose Rigid Morality that if, if you screw you, we'll never get enlightened. You know, I mean, that's pretty, <laughs> only the celibate get enlightened, only the one in a million get enlightened, only the person that's willing to die, only the person that's constantly going out and sticking knives in the wolves before they can stick a knife into you. Those are the people that get enlightened. Huh. And you can't do this and you can't do that. And, you know, you just talk about creating a shadow. I mean, when you're living that kind of thing, you just, something's going to pop out somewhere else. And then you have Cohen, who was also very rigid and had very rigid structures of levels of the development and you know he had what he called holons which were group and i think he got that from Aunt, from wilbur yeah that there's certain levels and you're in this level and you can't you know this level can't marry that level you yeah know, just nest, nested hierarchies yeah and you have all that rigidity and then you so you start off of course the perennial wisdom of not already knowing you got these teachers talking about not already knowing or already know everything mm. you know they got everything into a bucket Yes, and then they're telling you you shouldn't do that. It's bullshit. You're just you, the whole idea of hierarchy. I just I'm so damn sick of it. And one of the things you and I've talked about before is that I I the radical equality of unimaginable love is so intrinsic and so natural and so liberating. But I digress. So 
so coming up with all these ideas of what's moral and what's not moral, and not just moral in terms of some evangelical Christian sense of morality, but just mm -hmm. what's what's appropriate. You know, you right. vote. Was, what's the is the appropriate the Buddhist term? Am I close to it? Yeah, right. Right, right. Action. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> right action. Not even appropriate. It's right. right. Exactly. <laughs> is that when you're when you're beyond the mind, and this is where it's so interesting, where my experience with love so much maps the perennial wisdom. Your mind, whatever your mind has preset, is just not going to work. It's going to be just another limiting idea, including ideas of morality. It doesn't mean that there's no morality to it, because there's a there's a purity, there's an innate purity to this that resonates, or is connected to life, into relationship, into action, into motive, into all the things that we you know we want to purify ourselves to. So there is a relationship. It's not anything goes, but it's not predetermined. It can't be predetermined because it's beyond the mind. And I think it also there's a without getting too deep here, I'm wondering, you know, who's people would think, well, what the hell is he talking about? Is there's an inner penetration of the there's an interdimensional penetration. There's there's some there's some verticality, there's some higher wisdom that comes in that doesn't necessarily translate into what our mind can understand. We don't have the senses yet. That's maybe a better way to say it. I feel like we don't have the senses yet. So so then how does one live a moral life? You know, how does one make decisions? Oh, I'm married to someone. I made a commitment to someone, and yet there's someone that I that I feel a connection to and a, and a destiny to, and I could feel brings out a part of me that will never get developed in my marriage. What right. do I do? Right, right. You know, how do I? It's just a classic kind of thing. And, Real life situation. And I'm, you know, what do I? What are you going to do? You going to read the Bible? You know, you go to a therapist? Are you going to? No, but in every moment, there's a couple of things that. So, so the main point, the the answer to your question, or whatever the meta point is, that that in in the real, whatever the relationship that you have in the moment, if there's a pure channel between you, what what keeps the channel pure between you? So, in the in the example that I use, having been in a situation, of course, when I was married, I didn't have another, I, I didn't have another woman in my life. I just knew that my marriage was keeping me boxed in, and that I I was the the discrepancy between who I was when I was out with people and out in the in the wisdom and the world and who I had to be to live in that life was so great that it just it just I was turning myself into not the channel wasn't pure it was all convoluted and I had to go through all kinds of motions to make convince myself that said mm. so you know in a way it's almost like it sounds so silly it's how do you, how does how does it, you know the wisdom I had is how does the decision make you feel. Now that's ripe with all kinds of stuff because some yes. people say the decision how I feel when the alcohol, alcoholic finally has that first drink after ten years is pretty damn good, you know. So, but some of this comes with the the when we have connections, real connect, real connectivity with people. There's a channel, for lack of a better word. There's a channel that we share with that individual, and whatever heightens that channel, deepens the channel, keeps the channel clean and pure. To me, that's the pinprick of light that you follow. That's the morality. That will be self-revelatory. And whatever clouds it up, whatever makes it murky or dirty, it doesn't mean it won't be confusing or difficult or even create conflict. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about a deep, true authenticity, a deep, just true, the ease I talked about of hearing the truth, the deep ease of more love, not less love, more ease, not less ease, more authenticity, not less authenticity. That that's the morality that reveals itself in the moment, as opposed to these predetermined realities, uh, moralities and realities that are being created. 
that were in my case created by two teachers who just imploded upon themselves and and the first chance people had to think for themselves just threw it out the window. Mm. Not to be too Buddhist referential, but <laughs> no, please do it because I, I, I love hearing. You know, you're like you're like you're, um, <laughs> you're like my Wilbur right now. I'm putting things into the <laughs> <laughs> not that I'm the Cohen. I was just talking to um, a friend and uh, another person like you is an older friend and mentor, a friend tour, and um, you know. He was a Zen teacher, and uh, this is David Loy. He studied in Japan for twenty years, mm -hmm. and you know, did the full-on Japanese yeah. Zen thing, the koans and all that. And you know, he came away from that experience very critical of the and skeptical of the system that he went through. You know, and didn't didn't end up teaching koans to people yeah. because of that. But you know, part part of what I, I guess I've learned from talking to David and and exploring Zen, you know, mm -hmm. is that that Zen is so much about spontaneity and about, you know, getting in touch with the wisdom of the moment and letting it, you know, letting it be uh, you know, being an open channel mm -hmm. for that. Um, and the Zen tradition, especially in modern, you know, the, the modern times we yeah. know about, um, it's littered with people who you could say Zen masters being sexually compulsive. Yeah. And so there's something, there's some very interesting and odd relationship between spontaneity and, and compulsivity. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, often there can be, it's, it's hard to sometimes differentiate. I found yeah. it difficult to like discern, like when is this, what you're describing, I think of more being an open channel or mm -hmm. kind of appreciating the connection and when am I just, when am I being compulsive and just there's a feeling or you know, impulse right. that arises and I just decide to go with it. Um, but I'm not maybe clear where that impulse is arising from mm -hmm. all the time or what, it, you know, what it's underlying, you know, there's always stuff that seems like it's invisible mm -hmm. to consciousness. And so I find that, I find it challenging to, to, to know how to. Yeah. And obviously you're not going to. Right. <laughs> I mean, you're not going to say, oh, here's what you do, you know, and you put this litmus test and you know, whether it's just your shadow talking or whether it's the heavens you know the angels calling you forth mm. with me I, I just tell you my own journey i moved from my head to my heart mm. and that sounds really trite and new agey and hallmark cardish perhaps and i've always had a deep heart i've always been a man of heart even when i was a dick mm. I, was a, I was a dick with a big heart or a big heart who acted like a dick i don't know yes um and i don't want to make it seem like i was a dick for 40 years because i've i've I'm a, I'm, I've been sweet my whole life, just confused and desperate. Um, and then as I started to, and I'm right now, my inquiry is how do I see the world through my heart? And not just like, oh, how would my heart see it? But literally growing a sense organ. And this is my metaphor for it. Growing a sense organ in my heart and seeing what's that world look like. Mm. And often all you can get is what I call that pinprick of light. Just one mm. little, but there, I think there's always the pinprick. And then rather than, than go into an exegesis about, is this my shadow or is this the angels? Yeah, and right. how about the 20 times it happened before and uh, you know, roll the dice and what do we think? Mm. Is, mm. And, and I think to me, it, it's, it's because of the relationship. If I'm doing this myself, I'm getting lost in the circuit, the circuitity of the mind, which all of us know. There's nobody on this podcast hasn't meditated mm -hmm. and they all know how the mind is going to run in a circle. So I don't need to beat that horse bum to death. But if you're in relationship and then you have a channel, then you have a connectivity, you feel, you can feel what that is. That requires 
and I don't want to make it sound like a discipline because it's not. But one of the requirements of that open channel is such a vulnerability, such an openness, such a willingness. And when it is the product of love and infused by love and drawn by love, it's not a discipline. And sometimes it's hard. I find my, I mean, I told you, I, my daughter, I mean, I'll share my daughter's in a, in a, in a therapeutic setting in Utah and she's 17 years old and she's, you know, she's just recovering. And I, I, I see her three days every two months. It breaks my heart. Mm. My heart breaks just talking about it now. But, and so what do I do? You know, I don't, first of all, I don't want to dodge it. I don't want to go, oh, I'm so sad. You know, I can do that. We can all pull up the nostalgic moods. But I feel that it's a reservoir overflowing with love. And I, well, I go into that reservoir where I let this reservoir overflow. Well, I just feel that love, not know where it's going, but knowing, trusting in the goodness of, of life and the goodness of love and the goodness of that. And so that kind of channel, I go going back out of my own, little world here but going into that channel that that exists if you if you have the willingness to just be open the same way that we are in meditation like whatever comes it comes i'm not going to send the scout up ahead and say if you come in it's okay but you can't right. it's the same way with love you just have that op- that open heart and you requires trust it requires someone on the other end i mean in a way i i feel i'm getting more adept at just doing this out in the world with the Walmart clerks and mm-hmm. you know everybody that everybody that calls, I, I shower my love upon them. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah. But in terms of in terms of the openness and be able to feel your way of that being quote the path. Yeah, that's my path. Yeah, it's whatever love reveals in the next moment is is my path. And I feel, God damn it, I've paid my dues to be able to come here and sound like a Hallmark card because <laughs> I busted my ass and I've re- I tried to get rid of love. I did everything I could to push love away because I thought it was going to soften me up and I would never storm the gates of heaven. I'd never get enlightenment. I tried to rinse this, rinse this out of me. And the irony of it is it's been my, it's been my destiny and it's been my salvation. And yes, I'm a man of love. I, you know, we can talk about the, 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 the woman, the person who's, who's unlocked this and created it and shared it and is, that I'm living this you know, deepest dream I didn't even know I was dreaming with. It's my favorite thing in the world to talk about. Mm. Um, but I have so, I love the truth and I'm so grateful that I have an ear for the truth and a willingness to go with the truth, whatever it looks like. And the fact that the truth is now what I most want, that's really great. <laughs> that's your, When the truth in you and your deepest desires line up to be one thing, that's, pretty much as close to heaven on earth as I could possibly imagine. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community, and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.